Well, happy Mother's Day, everyone. Uh, good to have you here. Glad you can uh, join us this morning on this beautiful day. Um, if you have a Bible, we're walking through the Gospel of Matthew, and we're in the ninth chapter of the Gospel of Matthew, or if you use your app, or it'll be on the screen, either way. Uh, Jesus, um, in the Gospel of Matthew, which means, it, it basically means the good news that Matthew shares, which talks about uh, the life of Jesus, uh, this portion of it is kind of centered on Jesus spending some time in his hometown called Capernaum, which is a waterfront town right on the Sea of Galilee, which would be, we would use, we would call it a lake, but it was the, uh, a big body of water for them. And uh, it's a fishing village, and Jesus hangs out with mostly people who fish and uh, be in waterfront. It exists in Israel, um, but Israel at this time is under uh, Roman occupation, and it's a very, like the Roman Empire, it's very oppressive, uh, highly taxed, uh, not many rights for the peasants, um, but the, the divide between the upper class and the lower class is wide and, and widening, so uh, that's kind of the context that we read this story in, and today we'll be, uh, I'm going to read through it and then we'll talk through it a bit, just a few verses today that we're going to look at. And just talk about uh, what Jesus is doing while he's on earth and, and the implications that has for us today. Uh, we're going to ask if Jesus is hanging out with the wrong crowd. Um, this would be, if you were Jesus' mom, this would be a hard week uh, for you because of the people he's picking to be his friends. Uh, this is verse 9. As Jesus uh, passed on from there, uh, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to the disciples, Why does your teacher, your rabbi, eat with the tax collectors and the sinners? But when he heard it, when Jesus heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came to call the not for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So you can see Jesus uh, causing trouble, but not causing trouble with the people who uh, are sinners and tax collectors, causing trouble with the people who are Pharisees, teachers of the law, the holiness crowd, uh, the religious crowd. Uh, this is Jesus' pattern in his life, and this will be a theme that comes up over and over and over when you read through Jesus. And nobody had a real problem with Jesus except the people who were holding on to power, whether that was religious power or political power or a weird intermix of the two. Uh, people who didn't have power seemed fascinated with Jesus, and Jesus seemed to reach out to those people. Uh, but when Jesus walks up to Matthew, Matthew is the tax collector, and he's collecting taxes for Herod Antipas, uh, who was uh, this kind of puppet king. He would be a Jewish Roman king, like the Romans would put a Jewish king in charge uh, so that it seemed like they were benevolent. But this Jewish king would be a complete traitor, moved over to the Roman side, and oppressing his own people for uh, this occupying army of the Romans that are in town or in the nation taking over basically the known world. And so Matthew would have this tax booth and Herod Antipas actually taxed even the fishermen. So it's, it's pretty likely that this would be a tax booth or a little like a IRS hut that would be down by the waterfront 
And when you came in with your fish, right away we're going to tax some of that fish and we're going to take some of that. And the way that taxation worked is that there would be a set percentage that Herod Antipas, the governor, the puppet king would have set. And then the tax collector would pay his own salary by putting in a little bit of a percentage there, right? That he can kind of deem at his own convenience. So if you have a big haul of fish, then Herod Antipas is going to take so many of those fish and sell them at the market himself, I guess. And then uh, Matthew's going to take some too. So that the people basically lived below poverty levels. The entire people. Taxation wasn't like, hey, I'm going to take a little off the top. It just goes, you take a little off the top. And there. And that's what you get. And the taxes go to the rest. And so Matthew, as a Jewish guy as a member of that community, would be seen as a traitor. He was the guy who worked for the oppressive army and oppressed his people. Matthew had no friends, except for people who were outside of the Jewish religious system. And in a Jewish religious town, those were the sinners. Those were the people who were involved uh, in practices that were unclean. Those are the people who weren't acceptable to the people who serve God and from their perception those people were not acceptable to God. And so Matthew lived his life taking advantage of his own people. It'd be like if someone from our town started being in charge of taxing for a foreign invading army and was taking advantage of the people in our town for his own benefit as well. We're all suffering and yet this person is gaining from our suffering. Nobody would like this guy, right? We would see that right away. And chances are, because we've read the story up to this point, Jesus is making multiple trips in boats with the fishermen back and forth across this lake. Jesus has had interactions with Matthew before. Matthew has probably taxed Jesus, which is probably an awkward thing to do when you end up in heaven. You know, if he cheated Jesus out of some of those fish. Fish that Jesus was really hungry for, you know. Uh, but Jesus is forgiven. Forgive, for, mm, Jesus has a forgiving character towards Matthew. <laughs> when Matthew interacts with Jesus, he probably knows who this guy is. Capernaum isn't some huge metropolitan town. Everyone in town would know that the rabbi is here. The teacher is here. They would know where Jesus' house was, where he lived in the neighborhood. They would know where Matthew's house was. They would understand the different roles that people had in the community. Matthew's probably heard Jesus teach. And Jesus has probably had conversations with Matthew. And they're walking by one day, and Jesus says to him, Why don't you follow me? This story, the calling of Matthew, uh, who is also called Levi, a lot of people had two different names in that time, depending on culture. Um, this story is included in the Gospel of Mark and the Gospel of Luke as well. It's an important enough story that multiple Gospel writers, out of the four Gospel writers, three of them think it's, included, think it's important enough to include. And as they write this, they include different details. And in Mark and Luke, they actually say that Matthew left everything and went. So he leaves like a very lucrative job. If you're the one who collects taxes and you take a percentage that you deem fit, 
You know, if your wife's birthday's coming up or it's Mother's Day soon, you can take a little bit more. You don't have to worry about where your next paycheck's coming from because you have the whole Roman Empire getting money for you, taking advantage of your own countrymen. And so Matthew leaves, the other two gospel writers uh, emit this, but the gospel of Matthew, his namesake, the introduction of the author here, actually leaves that part out that he leaves everything. He leaves a life of wealth. It's an interesting thing because we always think that Jesus is for the poor, right? Jesus is for the downtrodden. Jesus is for the people who are having a hard time. According to all standards, Matthew had a pretty sweet life. He had all the money he needed. He had unlimited resource for that money. As long as people kept working, he would keep getting money. And he could eat all the fresh fish he wanted because of where his tax booth would have been. And Matthew walks away from wealth, walks away from a definition of his life to follow the disciples. And Jesus, who's, or to follow Jesus with the disciples, which is a weird concept because Jesus, he's referred to here as a teacher or as a rabbi, and the rabbi would travel around teaching. And if you were good enough, you could say to the rabbi, I'd like to be one of your disciples. And this was common practice. I want to follow you. I want to be a part of what you've got going on. And so you would apply to this and then you would follow. And in every other rabbi's system, the disciple has to prove themselves. The, the, the rabbi would ask a couple of questions, and depending on the disciple's answer, he would approve or disapprove your ability to become like me. Jesus goes to fishermen, the ones who aren't good enough for a rabbi. Jesus goes to a tax collector who would be seen as a traitor and qualifies him for discipleship. He goes to Matthew and says, follow me. And Matthew drops everything and gets up and follows Jesus. It had to be awkward because we know the disciples from other stories. We know the disciples started to get a bit full of themselves. They started having arguments over who gets to sit right next to Jesus in heaven. Right? You don't want to be caught in that argument. <laughs> you know, like I bet you when we all go to heaven, I bet you my throne's a little bit bigger. I am, a, I am the pastor. <laughs> you, you don't want to be caught in that argument, right? When, when Jesus talks about these things and he confronts these arguments that disciples have, he's like, you are completely misunderstanding the way the kingdom of God works. It's all about who serves the most people or who serves with the, with the biggest heart, not the most people, but who serves with the biggest heart and who serves like the masses as opposed to getting the masses to serve themselves. And so when Jesus asked Matthew, hey, follow me, Matthew starts walking behind the rabbi with these other disciples who've probably muttered nasty things at him as they gave him their hard work, their taxes, right? Like when you wrote your check to pay your taxes this year, you probably didn't include a thank you note. Hey, I really appreciate what you're doing for this country. I just love working so you can have my hard-earned dollars. Right? You didn't write that. <laughs> when the... You, these people didn't have a positive relationship with Matthew and yet Jesus qualifies him to come into his inner circle. When you read the story, what did Matthew do to qualify? The moralistic thing to say is Matthew left everything and that's what qualified him. And then I'll say, if you'll leave everything, you'll qualify to follow Jesus, right? That would be a good sermon, but it's kind of a lie, so, which makes it a pretty bad sermon. What qualifies Matthew is that Jesus says, follow me. 
before Matthew does anything, before Matthew leaves everything, before Matthew decides to say yes, Jesus says, follow me. The whole qualifier for Matthew in following Jesus and being a disciple is simply that Jesus decides. Jesus says, you follow me. He goes to a guy who's a traitor, who would be hated, who would be on the outside of society. A guy who only goes to synagogue on Mother's Day just to placate his mom, right? He doesn't need this stuff. He doesn't want this stuff. He has a great life. He understands he's not good enough for God, and that's fine. God can have those people. I have a pretty good life. Jesus walks up to that guy. And Jesus qualifies him by saying, follow me. And then Jesus, because he sees something in Matthew, this spark of the divine, because Matthew's made in the image of his creator, he goes and hangs out at a house. And it's kind of unclear as to whether it's Matthew's house or whether it's Jesus' house, but the Bible says they're reclined at the table. And this is how they would actually eat. They would kind of hang out, lay down on these like benches at the table. Kind of a more of a Middle Eastern, Near Eastern kind of way of sitting. And as they reclined at the table, at the table with Jesus are tax collectors, plural, many tax collectors. Because you want to know who Matthew hung out with? The other people who were like him. Many tax collectors and sinners. And you know you've got a great culture and a great religious culture if you've got a whole like category of people called sinners. If we've got, in our culture, we've got the Christians, we've got kind of the non-Christians, and then the sinners. Right? When Jesus hangs out at a table, he hangs out with those people. He sits down, he reclines at the table with the cultural traitors and the people who knew that the religious establishment has said, you're not good enough for God. Jesus, if he's in middle school, he's making bad choices. Jesus is hanging out with the people that you don't want to hang out with. He's not hanging out with the movers. He's not hanging out with the people who are on mission for God. He's not even hanging out with the people who love God the most. Like when you look, if you see when it says, the Pharisees saw this, they said to the disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? That's the right question. The Pharisees, their whole goal in life is holiness. Is is being acceptable to God. Is the forgiveness of their sins and then avoiding further sins so that God is honored. The Pharisees have built this system that helps them know and love God. The Pharisees aren't thinking, like, let's, let's, be, let's just be rude. Their first thought is, let's love God. This is how I'm going to love God. This is how I'm going to interact with Him. And yet your rabbi is doing this strange thing, which is out of bounds, which is outside of the rules. Because eating with someone, you need to understand this culturally, eating with someone was to share a bond with someone. We'll eat together because you have a meeting or because you need a seat in the cafeteria, right? In their culture, eating together 
meant that we are friends. Like we are friends for life kind of deal. If I'm going to invite you over to my house and we're going to eat together, then that means like I'm going to care for you and you're going to care for me and we're friends. We're like family. We are in this together because we've eaten together. And Jesus apparently decides to eat together with sinners and many tax collectors. All the people that aren't good enough for God. Jesus decides to say, you people are my people. So the holiness of the Pharisees, the whole, the whole concept of holiness of the Pharisees is called into question. Because they've built their holiness on some practices. They've built their holiness on their ability to do these things. They've built their holiness on their ability to heal themselves through the systems of the Old Testament. And yet Jesus walks into this, into this city, into this town, and He calls together the people who aren't good enough, and He brings healing to their souls, and brings holiness to their lives because of His intersection with them. Not because they followed a number of rules. For the sinners... Holiness begins with admitting that I'm broken and that I need someone to reach out to me because I can't perform a bunch of religious rituals in order to be good enough for God. The Pharisees had this system where they understood that if I follow these 15 rules or these 75 rules, then I can do enough behavior modification then when I get to heaven, God will appreciate it. If I suffer enough, I'll be acceptable to God. This is the message of basically every major religion on earth save the gospel of Jesus. That if you work hard enough, achieve a high enough consciousness, act in a moralistic way good enough, then you will reach some kind of higher plane, then you will be acceptable to God, then you will be rewarded in the afterlife. The reason that this is called good news when we read the message of Jesus is that Jesus qualifies you to be a follower of Him and Jesus qualifies you to be healed. The sinners and the tax collectors didn't do a membership class. They didn't do, they didn't put money in an offering plate. They didn't show up at a life group. Jesus went to them and said, let's hang out. You people are going to be my people. When Jesus actually uh, talks to the, when he responds to the Pharisees, he uses this saying, which this saying is actually written down in other books, so it's probably a common saying. It says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. We think that this is something that the Pharisees had to deal with, right? But in reality, this is something that we deal with every... This is an, like an eternal truth. The people who think they're fine have no need for Jesus. It's an interesting question in your life. If you back up, if Jesus ceased to exist, or if you weren't a Christian, is your life basically the same? If you weren't a follower of God... If you're just a nice person, a moralistic person, you'd probably have the same like moral standards. You want to be a good neighbor, a good citizen, those kinds of things. What is the difference that Jesus actually makes? 
This is why we say, uh, there's this great saying, um, I think it was by Dan Spader. He said, uh, a non-praying, a, a Christian without a prayer life is equivalent to a non-practicing atheist. A non-practicing atheist. <laughs> if you don't have a prayer life, if you're not praying to God, it's basically saying in all practical sense that you've got this. You're going to follow God in those kinds of things, but you don't need to have any kind of a relationship with Him. This is the key to holiness in the Pharisee's life. The Pharisees had no need for God because they had a ritual and so they could push God outside of this because we had our moralistic rituals, our, our religious systems, our structure. We don't need God because we have this. This is the question for this is the question that Jesus asks. Do you actually need God? And he's not asking the sinners and the tax collectors. If you're here and you're not a believer in Jesus, you're not a follower, he's not asking you this question. Jesus wants to hang out with you. Jesus is asking all the religious people, do you even need me? Do you even want me in your life? Or have you built a system where everything will work without Jesus? When you have a church, uh, you'll think this is weird. But I think this is one of the number one temptations for pastors. Because I can practice, I can look on um, sermoncentral.com and get some really killer jokes. And uh, people can come. The band can play really well. We can get a DJ and serve a decent IPA at the back. And this church will be so dang full. <laughs> right? People will want to be here. Now we can bring in circus clowns and have some, you know, cotton candy at the back. Not just popcorn, because popcorn is not enough. We can get air conditioning. <laughs> yeah, if you started coming here, it's like this all summer long. So it's really a, it's Jesus testing our, our faith, uh, testing our love for him. But it is... It is truth that we can grow a church and we can draw a crowd and we can have big numbers without God. And as a pastor, then I can go up to my annual meeting and the superintendent, who's kind of my oversight, can be like, you are so amazing. And the other people can say, oh, you're part of the grove. And what Jesus says to Matthew is, follow me. Jesus, his evaluative tool for are you building a church that's actually a church is our people following Jesus when we get to heaven it's going to be weird because I understand the way the score sheet works if you hang out with pastors which I do and I don't encourage um, but they never they just talk 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 alright same here right but what churches want to tell you about is their attendance, it's the ABCs, their attendance, uh, their buildings, and their cash. Well, how big their budget is. That's what churches want to talk about. But this is why it's great that we don't have a building. It, it humbles me, so it makes me, I'm a, uh, well, people use the word conceited, I use the word convinced, but... Uh, <laughs> 
I tend to think highly of myself. I tend to think highly of our church. I'm going to talk like this is, you know, God's gift to this planet. Uh, But when we need to remember is it really doesn't matter how sweet the grove is, how cool anything is. It doesn't matter. Because when we get there, I'm going to want to tell Jesus, Jesus, when I die and I'm standing in front of the pearly gates, I'm going to have my stat sheet with me. Look at this, Jesus. I have 31 Twitter followers. Right? And Jesus wants to know, did you follow me? Jesus, I was guilt-tripped into this when I was a kid. Uh, They told me that when I get to heaven, Jesus is going to want to see my score sheet of how many people, how many other followers I made. I don't believe that's the question. I believe the question that Jesus is going to say is, do you know me? Do I know you? Do you follow me? Do we have a relationship? It's weird that Jesus isn't going to care about the things that are really important. The Pharisees have worked really hard to build this really good system of knowing who's doing good and who's doing bad. And apparently what Jesus cares about is uh, are we down? Like, are, are we friends? Are you following me? Do you love me? And then all of a sudden it's like, well, yeah, we love you. That's why we have a popcorn machine. That's why we have a really killer band. That's why I read three jokes online I'm going to use today. And Jesus says, what? <laughs> no, that's not really an answer to the question. Did we ever have conversations? Did you ever think, like, about me in a loving way? Well, Jesus, I had these rules. I had this structure and I built this thing. It's not until we start to admit that we have a problem that Jesus is able to heal us. See, Jesus hangs out with all these tax collectors and sinners, but that doesn't make them followers of Jesus. But it makes them able to see what life looks like. Like If you're here and you're not a Christian, that's uh, thank you for being here. Thank you for being brave enough to walk into a church. You didn't know what was going to happen. And what we want you to know is that Jesus doesn't expect anything out of you. He doesn't want something from you. He wants to be friends with you. He wants to give you a gift. That's His death and resurrection pays the price for our sins so that we can have relationship with God. We don't have relationship with God because we're really good at this, because we attend a certain amount of time. We have relationship with God because we choose to. Because we receive the forgiveness, we we use the word repent, which means we turn away from a sinful life and turn towards a life in relationship with Jesus. And then we do certain things, like we follow what people would call rules, not out of obligation, but out of love for Jesus. This is the same reason you get stuff for your mom for Mother's Day. There's no rule. You don't go to jail. You don't you don't even get maybe you get a guilt trip but eventually they'll forgive you she's your mom you should I mean stop at Walgreens on the way home don't go home and say you'll forgive me alright but (laughs) but at the end of the day if we express love by saying hey I followed some rules hey honey I followed the rules that's not love if your spouse said to you I followed the rules of our relationship. That's not love. 
You don't feel love. If your kids just follow the rules that you put down, that's not love. You don't feel like, oh, they love me because they obey all the rules. You feel, I'm less stressed out because they follow all the rules. When Jesus wants to interact with human beings, it's not about here's a bunch of rules. It's about here's a relationship. And what qualifies Matthew to follow Jesus is Matthew's being able to rise and follow Jesus. See, when Jesus' call to discipleship is this, follow me. Matthew's response is this, and he rose and followed him. Matthew didn't know what Jesus was going to do. Matthew didn't know where it was going to go. He didn't know how long this trip was going to be. He didn't have a bunch of guarantees. He didn't have a structure. He didn't have a system. He didn't know what was going to go down. What he knew was, the rabbi that everybody's talking about, the teacher, the God, who's walking among us, said, hey, I'd like you to follow me. And he responded with, heck yes, this is the best opportunity I've ever been given. I'm going to follow him. Let's see what happens. And he gets in line with a bunch of guys that don't even like him. And he starts following Jesus. Here we go. What qualifies Matthew for discipleship is Jesus saying, follow me. What allows Matthew to experience the healing of God is simply his turning to Jesus and saying, this is the best life that I can possibly imagine. Here we go, I'm going to follow Jesus. This is John 10.10. This is my favorite verse in the Bible when Jesus says, I've come that they may have life and have it to the absolute full. That there's no life that you can live on this planet that's better than the life of following Jesus. I really honestly believe that. I think a lot of people don't believe that verse. Because I look at some Christians' life and I'm like, man, that is just the crummiest way to live. And usually when people have picked a crummy way to live, they don't need Jesus anymore because they've set up a structure. They've set up rules and set up a system that will make them feel acceptable to God. It's when all of a sudden you feel unacceptable to God that you're able to follow God. When you recognize that we're, the Bible says, we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And when we recognize that the Bible is true, and it is, we are who it says we are, we are able to experience the healing and the wholeness that is only experienceable in Jesus. I want to bring this up. This is the last thing. It's going to be really long because I'm a preacher, but I say in conclusion so you pay attention. Jesus says this to these guys. He says, Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Go and learn what this means. Jesus actually quotes Hosea 6.6 and he says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Interestingly, the that quote is taken from a translation of the Bible called the Septuagint, which translates Hosea 6.6 6 differently than some of the older manuscripts that we have. Let me read Hosea 6.6 6 to you. It says, um, For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. So this quote in Matthew quotes a different translation, just translation issues. It doesn't mean the Bible is not true. Where he, Jesus says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. The, when we have older documents that say in Hosea 6, 6, I desire steadfast love, not sacrifice. A knowledge of 
God rather than burnt offerings. And sacrifices and burnt offerings were part of this system that was built for the Pharisees or built for holiness that the Pharisees used. And God says, do these sacrifices, do these burnt offerings. And then he says, I actually don't want those. What I actually want is steadfast love. What I actually want is knowledge of God. We like to think, and, and especially if you're like a type A personality person, you like to think that, if you're like me, God sure appreciates the sacrifices that I'm making for Him. Like I'm making these sacrifices for God which makes me acceptable to God or makes me some kind of super Christian. And God actually says, well, I actually don't even want those. Like I'm sure you're having a good time there, but what I want is steadfast love. What I want is you to have a knowledge of God. God doesn't want you to sacrifice things for Him. He doesn't want you to do this or do that for Him. It is kind of a, you know, this isn't the right way to build a church. I'm, not, I'm supposed to guilt you into doing more things for God. But here's what I want you to know. God really doesn't give a rip what you do. Like, uh, as far as sacrificing and doing these fantastic things for Him, if it's not accompanied by love. You know this from your own relationships, don't you? Someone does something for you, it might be the greatest thing in the world, but if it's not accompanied by love, it doesn't mean anything. Here, honey, I got you flowers. They were on sale. Right? All of a sudden, those flowers aren't quite as meaningful. Hey, honey, I washed your car. You should take better care of it. Right? And that's not love. <laughs> that's a kind of an undercut. <laughs> These are all bad examples, so you know too. I'm using bad examples. <laughs> when the good things are accompanied by love, the good things become acceptable. And so God doesn't want your sacrifice. God doesn't want you to go and do great things for Him. He wants you to love Him. He wants you to have steadfast, enduring love for God. And then out of that, He can do great things with you. He can help you do these things that might be impressive or might not. Who really cares because you have a love relationship with Jesus. This really is a message not for the sinners and the tax collectors. If you're here and when I'm reading, you self put yourself in that category. Oh, I'm a sinner. I'm a tax collector. If you self-recognize, I'm on the outside of whatever this Christianity thing is, the message of this to you is that Jesus came for you. Jesus did not come to save the people who think they're righteous. Jesus came to save the people who recognize that they're on the outside. This is who Jesus came for. He did not come for a position of power. He did not come for a position of authority here. If he wanted to, he could have. He could have been born a king, an earthly king, but instead he was born to a teenage mom and a carpenter. This is God's preferred life on earth. So if you self-identify as being outside of the bounds of Christianity or whatever, the message for you is hope. The message for you is that Jesus wants to have a relationship with you. 
Jesus doesn't want some kind of magic tricks from you or some kind of performance. He wants to have a relationship with you. The harder message here is for those of you who this morning came here considering yourself righteous. Considering yourself holy in God's eyes. Considering yourself, you know, I've kind of got it together. I've kind of got a good deal going on. We had six different things go wrong this morning, but I'm still calm because I'm good with God. My kids fought all the way here, but it's okay. Because <laughs> I'm, I'm righteous. I'm holy. And then when I walk in there, people are going to recognize I'm here eight times out of ten. God's got kind of a harsh message for you. Because the message of Jesus is, well, I don't think you need me. The message of Jesus for people who think that they don't need Jesus is, okay, if you don't need me, all right. That's a weird choice. But the people who think they're healthy aren't going to go to the doctor. The people who think they're fine aren't going to need God. My wife and I, this week, we were um, talking to someone about Jesus. Uh, it's ironic because this happens in the same week. We're just talking to someone, and, and we do this. Well, I like to talk to people about Jesus. I know that's a weird thing, but uh, some of, you know, whatever. Um, and so we're talking to them, and they get everything. Like, I'm, I'm good with God. I'll tell you what, this person is not good with God, all right? Uh, I know two or three things about God. They're, they're not okay with God. I, and they told me, you know, when I swear, I say, oh, sorry, Lord. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, that makes God swear. But uh, <laughs> the, just this interaction that we had, and my, and my wife and I talked after. And the interesting thing was not that, uh, that the, the way the conversation went. It was that this person is not going to be able to experience the love of Jesus until they're able to admit they're not okay. As long as we hold on to this, I'm alright, I'm okay with the big guy upstairs attitude, you won't be able to break through. That's not a breakthrough. I can't explain that. I can't logically break that down. That has to be, now we've committed to increased prayer for our friend. Because the only way that someone can break through that is the Holy Spirit breaking down the walls that they have in their life. And I would say the most dangerous place that you can be is not in the camp with the sinners, but is in the camp of, I'm just fine with God. I'm good. God doesn't have to worry about me. That's incredibly dangerous. Jesus used words like lukewarm, and he actually talked about vomiting those people out of his mouth. And we have this thing where we say, there's hot Christians, then there's lukewarm Christians. Well, I wouldn't think that getting vomited out of Jesus' mouth qualifies you as a great follower of Jesus. There's, there's Christians, and then there's lukewarm non-Christians. The people who think they're just fine. Because the word Christian means follower of Jesus, right? A little Christ. It's, a, it's actually a title that was given to us. It wasn't, we didn't make, the, Christians didn't make this up. People started calling Christians this. And so as we 
we have these two categories where we're like, I'm, you know, I wasn't on fire Christian, now I'm kind of a lukewarm Christian. No, you're saying, I used to be in love with Jesus, now I have a system and a structure so I don't have to have a love relationship with God anymore. I used to be in love when I was a kid and things were romantic, now I'm not in love anymore. If you were, this is a major advantage, if you were saved as an adult or saved as a teenager, then you experienced a moment this is an advantage to that. It's a weird advantage, but it's an, you experience a moment where the love of God meant everything in your world. And that the, your love for God was the most important thing and it just overwhelmed you. That love feeling, that first love, is the relationship that Jesus wants to have with you. And I've heard it preached all the time. You know, when you first get married or you're engaged, it's so sweet because you're all in love. And then as you grow older, your love becomes more like a rock and you're solid together, right? This is usually said by people who haven't like physically had contact with their spouse in years. Pastors uh, who have no idea how to be a husband. This is judgmental of me, but I'm angry. And, and there's just this kind of Oh, you know, we used to be in love. We used to be all romantic. Now we've got history. Now you've got a lie. I'll tell you something. When I talk to older couples, I've talked to couples who have been married for 75 years, and the man will look at his wife and be like, dang, she is hot, right? Except they say like a 1950s version of that. But um, I don't know what they said back then. But, but I've seen it. I've seen couples who've been married 70, 75 years, and they're roommates, they're partners, right? And they're like, yes, we're in love. Because it's, you know, a bit of a pain to get divorced at this point. They won't say that around their spouse. But you can see it. And then you can see other spouses. You can see wives who look at their husband, who's a frail old man with a broken down back. And they're like, he might be the strongest man on this planet. And they just really believe it. They're so in love. This is what the relationship with Jesus looks like. Some of you are here today because I've heard pastors tell you this and it makes me mad that after a long time you won't have that hey, hey, I love Jesus feeling anymore because you've got history with Jesus. No, you've fallen out of love with Jesus. And now you're roommates with Jesus. Like you're living your life and Jesus is part of your life and hey, isn't that great? I don't believe that for one single second. I think you can have a relationship with Jesus. I'm talking just to the people who are religious here today. I, don't be, I think you can have a relationship with Jesus 20, 30, 40, 50 years in. You can still think that it's amazing that Jesus saved you from your sins. You can still think it's amazing that Jesus saw you and through nothing you did, Jesus said, follow me. And Jesus decided you and him are going to have this crazy loving relationship for all eternity. If you've fallen into some kind of religious pattern, if you've fallen out of love with Jesus, the call for you today is to fall back in love with Jesus. It's to ask Jesus to actually change your heart. To go back to that moment when you realized you weren't good enough and the amazing thing is Jesus said, follow me anyways. Eventually, we get this heart of stone. 
And this is out of Ezekiel in the Bible. What God promises is to take out your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And God doesn't make that promise to the tax collectors and sinners. He makes that promise to the religious people who already know Him. Because that heart of stone that you have has been built up over a long time. And it's time for you to allow Jesus to make that change in your life. It's time for you, this morning, to say, I actually need Jesus, and I actually want that love relationship with Jesus that I had at the beginning. I want to know Jesus. Not just know a neat way to follow Him, not just be roommates with Jesus for the next 50 years, but actually love Jesus in a way that 50 years from now, people look at me and think, that there's love there. That I'm in this with Jesus. And that Jesus is the single greatest thing in my life. I want to, let's bow our heads and I want to pray. For religious people, sometimes this is embarrassing. And so we're going to ask people to bow their heads. I'm going to actually, the band can come on up and I'm actually going to ask you to respond this morning. I'm actually going to, we're going to pray for those of us who've built a structure in our lives, who've fallen out of love in Jesus, with Jesus and need to fall back in love with Jesus. And I'm actually going to ask you, it's not going to be a big deal, but I'm going to ask you to raise your hand. We're not going to count. People around you aren't going to check you. But if as we're talking, you categorize yourself and say, yeah, like, my life would be no different if I wasn't roommates with Jesus. And that my relationship with Jesus isn't passionate as it used to be. I'm going to ask you to raise your hand right now. And we're going to pray together. I'm going to pray just for those of us in this room who are recognizing that. God, it's such a humiliating thing for us to recognize that we've fallen out of love. We don't know when it happened. We don't know how it happened. But just over a long period of time, we see it. Jesus, for those in this room with their hand up, in desperation, I want to pray like you, like you promised in Ezekiel, that you would remove the heart of stone that we have and give us a soft heart towards you. That you would cause us to fall in love with you. Cause our prayers to become just the most passionate conversations that we have all week long. Cause our worship to be worship that flows out of this incredible love that we have for you. When we read scripture, may it be just like a conversation. Like, God, you're there with us. We're interacting with you. We have relationship. Impress on us the truth that you don't want sacrifice from us. You don't want, some, you don't want us to be tougher. You don't want us to be stronger. You just want us to be in love. God, give us that love. Open our eyes to see the love that you've given us already. All across this room, God. Just heal us as we follow you and make us holy, not because of something we've earned, but because of just getting up and following you. I just pray this by your grace, God. Amen.